Well, I don't know about you, but I, I've had an epiphany recently. And we all have. That's a liturgical joke. We do that in seminaries sometimes. Uh, this past Sunday, January 6th, marked the beginning of the season of Epiphany and the end of the 12 days of Christmas, the season of Christmas. Uh, this marks the journey of the wise men from the east who came to follow the star to seek a new king, the baby Jesus, who is king of the Jews. I had a friend whose family took this season very, very seriously. And so each December, when they set up their nativity scene over their fireplace, they would not put the wise men in the nativity with the other characters. Because, see, they weren't there yet. It's not Epiphany. Um, the others, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angels, would all have to just carry on through December and through the 12 days of Christmas, and the wise men would have to stay in the box and just wait. And as their kids got older, they began to take on this tradition, only they had a new take on it. They didn't want the wise men to stay in the box. They were on the journey. And so when all the Christmas decorations were set up, they would put these three olive wood carved figures on the floor on the other end of the house in a hallway. And each day they would take a little step forward and move them along. You, you had to literally watch where you stepped in this house because there in the kitchen one day the wise men would be. And this all went pretty well until the year they got a puppy. <clears throat> and nobody really thought about the fact that puppy teeth and olive wood carvings don't mix very well. And so they woke one morning to find the wise men partially mangled, shedding splinters. Occupational hazard, I guess, you know. International travel will really take it out of you. Well, we, we sometimes call them the three kings, but they're not. We can't even say there were only three, only that there were three gifts. They were scholars, astrologers, advisors to royalty back in the East, interpreters of dreams and the movement of stars. And I wonder sometimes why we call them wise, since they're the ones that tipped off Herod. They're the ones that brought the news that there was another king to compete for the throne, and things didn't go so well after that. If they were so wise, why didn't they do a little background check on Herod, right? This is the same king who murdered anyone who might compete for his throne, including his closest advisors, including his own sons. But I guess we should cut the wise men some slack, because after all, if you want to find a king, you go straight to the palace. So that's where they went. And Herod put on a nice face and claimed to want to worship the baby king, too. But we know the truth that Herod knew. There, there is only room for one king. For one to sit on a throne, the other will have to be unseated. And there's always someone looking to take over the throne. Herod knew that all too well. So he, he gathered the closest Jewish scholars and advisors. And he asked them, what do your scriptures tell you? Where is this king? What does it say in your scripture about the birthplace of the king of the Jews? And they answered him honestly. It's plain. It's right there in the Hebrew scriptures. The king is to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod slyly asked the wise men to return and share the exact location with him as they went to visit so that he could go and worship the new baby king too. And if by worship he meant murder, then he wasn't lying. 
So everyone is searching for a king. The wise men are searching, and Herod is searching, all for very different reasons. Curiously, the only people in this story who are not searching are the Jewish scholars and advisors. They're somehow on Herod's payroll under his roof. They know the location of the manger. They know there are wise men seeking a new baby king. But for some reason, they're too comfortable to go and seek on their own. They've chosen their king, and it's Herod. To tell the truth, these religious scholars are the ones that are sitting on the truth in the scroll of the Torah. So that they could have told us not only where the king of the Jews was to be born, they could have told where the very idea for the king of the Jews originated. How Israel came to desire a king of their own in the first place. It happened under Samuel's watch, but he would not be proud to tell you that. Samuel was the last of the judges to rule Israel, the last of the rulers to combine this political leader's authority and spiritual leader's connection as a go-between to speak for God to the people and for the people to God. He heard the people's needs and he, he brought them God's answers. And towards the end of his time as judge, he heard the most audacious request of all, give us a king. Now why? Why do God's people want a king? What is the all-important reason for this amazing request that will change the culture, the politics, and the history of their people? It's the same reason that parents had to fight off ridiculous requests for a variety of unreasonable presents this Christmas season, because all the other kids have one. All the other kingdoms had kings, and the Israelites had noticed and they wanted one too. Enough messing around with these judges. Enough trying to meet the needs of this unseen God. Give us someone we can see and hear and follow. Give us someone who looks like us. And Samuel insisted, and, and he wasn't wrong, that this was a bad idea. He went on at great length to demonstrate to them that a king was not necessarily the solution to all of their problems. That a king, in fact, was just the beginning of a whole new set of problems. Frederick Buechner describes how Samuel didn't spare them one sordid detail. He told them, kings are either drafting you into their armies or strong-arming you to work on their farms. They take your daughters and put them to work in their kitchens and their factories. They will fill their barns with your livestock. They will get you to slave for them until you drop in your tracks. See, kingdoms exist for the benefit of kings, not the other way around. And if you came down to it, your king would demand that you die for him, whether as a slave or a soldier, and were you ready for that? Did they want all of that, Samuel asked? Were they prepared for those consequences? You already have a king, he insisted. This is what makes Israel different, is that God is our king. To ask for a human king instead was to reject God as their king. To trade a king who delivered them from slavery for a king who would enslave them 
That is what they were asking for. And the Israelites said, yes, give us a king. You can't really mint shiny coins with God's face on them. Give us a king so that we can call heads and put his face on our coins. You can't really prop up God in a chariot and follow him into battle, riding strong and tall to intimidate your enemies. They stuck to their guns. Fine, give us a king. We don't care what the consequences are. And God said, okay, give the people what they want, but tell them, don't come crying to me when you get exactly what you've asked for. And what they got, first of all, was Saul. And God has just enough irony to select as the first king of Israel exactly what human opinion would be looking for. 1 Samuel 9 tells us that Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. So you could ask them, tell me about your new king. Is he smart? Well, he's handsome. Is he a good military strategist? Did I mention he's tall? How about a kind ruler? Is he good to his people? Well, he's really good looking. That's the king they got. Nothing but height and good looks. And these qualifications may make him look like the king that they were longing for, but it turns out that the characteristics that people see as being those of a good king do not necessarily make a good leader. After Saul, they got David, showing that even a king after God's own heart, the best king that Israel could imagine, would still be an adulterer and a murderer. And by the third king of Israel, they got Solomon. And in him, every one of Samuel's predictions of the dangers of kingship came true. Every single one. Have you ever heard that phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely? Turns out it's true. If the scribes that had surrounded Herod and given him their advice, the ones who pointed the way to the manger in Bethlehem, if they could have told him from this book all the stories of Israel's kings, they would have told you this. And a lot more, how the generation after the generation after generation of kings would go from bad to worse. How if somebody had just flipped a few pages back in the Hebrew scriptures, you would have found a king playing a very prominent role that in the central story of this people was a king they called Pharaoh. And is that what they wanted again? Someone who had built his kingdom on the backs of their blood their backs and their blood for hundreds of years. And that when he felt their numbers were too great, he had a whole generation of baby boys thrown into the Nile just for population control. I wonder if Herod did see that page of the history the Jewish leaders showed because he took a page from Pharaoh's book. And when he couldn't find the baby Jesus, he decided to wipe out all the baby boys of this generation. See. There's only room for one king. And the kingdom exists for his comfort, his benefit, his protection. The kingdom exists to serve the king, not the other way around. 
Most kingdoms will do anything to protect their king. This is the goal of the game of chess, for example. Have you ever played? When the king falls, the kingdom is lost and the game is over, checkmate. So to prevent that, all of the other pieces can and should be sacrificed, all for the good of the king. This self-protective nature of kingdoms for their kings, it exists even into the modern era. See, at the end of World War II, when the Allies invaded and were planning their invasion of Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944, the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill desperately wanted to join his troops as they went into combat. He wanted to watch the invasion from the bridge of a battleship in the English Channel. I mean, who can blame him? Churchill had been the mastermind. He had been the leader. He wanted to be there on that day to watch when they won the decisive battle. But the U.S. general at the time, Dwight Eisenhower, was desperate to stop him for fear that the prime minister might die in battle, and that would be terrible for the outcome. But Churchill resisted. He was a force to be reckoned with. He would not change his plans to go into battle with his troops. And so Eisenhower appealed to a higher authority. He went to King George and said, you've got to stop your prime minister from going into this battle. So the king had a brilliant plan. King George told Churchill that if it was the prime minister's duty to witness the invasion, why couldn't the king go too? The king insisted if Churchill was going to stand on the ship and go into battle, the king would go and stand beside him. And this was the only thing that made Churchill back down, for he knew they could never expose the king to such danger. You never risk the king. All of the other pieces will fall and sacrifice before you will risk the life of the king. The kingdom exists to protect and serve the king, not the other way around. Even if the king is Pharaoh and demands your people enslaved, even if the king is Saul and has no qualifications except height and a little bit of madness, even if the king is David, and can't control his own lust for women or power, or Solomon and fulfills all of the predictions of how bad a king could be just to show off his power and wealth on earth. But what if the king is a baby? What if the king is King Jesus, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a bed of straw? This one that the wise men, and we'll we'll call them wise here, searched for and finally found. For when they found him, they fell on their faces in the dirt in front of him, something they never did for Herod. There's only room for one king, and they chose which one they would serve, so they were wise. What kind of king is this baby, the true king of the Jews? Kings are not public servants, and yet this baby became a servant. He associated with outcasts. He lifted the lowly. He looked for the least and the last and the overlooked and took their side. He doesn't force his way to rule in our lives because it's his divine right. It is. But he patiently knocks at a door and waits for us to invite him in. 
On the cross, he offered a king's ransom, his life for ours, yours and mine. And instead of his kingdom existing to serve and protect the king, this king actually gave his life for his servants, for you and me. And when they put up a sign mocking him as king of the Jews in three languages so everybody could get the joke, God turned that joke into truth. And a crown of thorns that was meant for mockery actually proclaimed his kingly dignity, even in death. What kind of king is Jesus? What kind of God, when his people reject him and ask for a human king that will always be all too human, says, fine, give the people what they want. Give them a man to be king. And then what, what kind of God is too good to give us just what we want and instead gives us what we need? Saying, if they want a man to be king, then I will just have to become a man. Because there's only room for one king. What kind of king, seeing his people in danger, doesn't send us into battle to stand alone on the bridge, but steps in front of us into danger, declares checkmate, and throws himself before the executioner? What kind of king rises from the dead in a checkmate against death that no one could have expected? There's only room for one king, and this child is it. In Jesus, the newborn king, God gave us not just what we wanted and asked for. He gave us what we needed, and as always, it is him. Lately, it's been in theological fashion to eliminate the words king and kingdom from the Christian vocabulary, creating some new words, brand new words, by calling it a kingdom, K-I-N-D-O-M, that's kingdom without the G. This seems so much cleaner, I guess. Kingdom is so much more familial, comfortable. It's much more modern. It's free of all the negative history attached to the archaic and colonialist view of calling someone a king. But make no mistake, it doesn't matter what you call it, you will have a king. We're human. We crave it. We beg for it. We will follow stars and journey to other lands to get it. We will bow down when we find the thing that will rule our lives. To find a king, we will ask to be like other nations, to have someone who will make us look good and strong and protect us in our battles. That's the cry of the human heart. It always has been. And to put something that's human or created by humans in that place where the king belongs is just to say that we want something we can control. That's the only benefit of idolatry. But make no mistake, whatever you put on the throne of your life will rule over you for its own benefit, not for yours. So what kind of king do you want on that throne? If we say we worship kin and not king, that we're part of a kingdom and not a kingdom, even if we're putting something good, as good as the church or the unity of the family of God at the center and on that throne, anything we put there will still elevate itself to the level of king and demand homage. And if we don't prostrate ourselves to it, it will flatten us because there's only room for one. The kingdom exists for God's glory, 
not the other way around. So we had an epiphany, and everybody's looking for a king. The wise men are looking to worship. Herod is looking to eliminate the competition. The Israelites are looking to keep up with the neighbors. And God's people today are still craning their necks to see what everyone else is worshiping this season and asking, can't we have one of those too? Everybody's looking for a king. If you're human, you better believe that you are. And there's only room for one king in your life. So choose this day. Which kind of king do you want? Amen.